While in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, it is still worth considering the secondary consequences of our response. We will do that. But it's Holy Week, so we're, we are going to start there on this week's Corey Truax Show. Welcome in to a Holy Week edition of the Corey Truax Show. For those of us, including myself here, didn't grow up on the liturgical calendar, the, the liturgy of the year, the rhythm of the year for the believer, here we are with our, our true New Year's. It's the, the beginning of new things, the promise of Christmas that we recognized back in December and that part of our rhythm of the year. That, that, that promise is a Savior come to reconcile God and man. At that time of the year, we even sing a hymn that has the lyric, God and sinners reconcile. It's part of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, one of the other lyrics, God and sinners reconciled. But the work to do that, to reconcile God and man, oh, that is this week. The, week, the work of Holy Week is what makes that possible, and we're going to start there in just a minute on the Corey Truax Show. First, my name is indeed Corey Truax. We're dedicated to smarter, deeper, and better talk about absolutely everything here on the Corey Truax Show. And if you are listening live on 91.9 and 92.9, his radio talk, it is Resurrection Day Eve on Saturday, and I hope you will be making plans to join with somebody of believers. If that is at the drive through church situation that is starting to become more prevalent or online as we're in this time of COVID-19, I hope you are. It's uh, We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday as the Lord's Day. But certainly, it's a it's, it's a good celebration tomorrow. If you happen to be listening during the week, you know if you, if it's Wednesday, that's usually in the liturgical calendar where people remember the, uh, the the betrayal of Jesus. That it was someone to whom he had done someone to whom he had done great service to. You know, it, it go, going on into Maundy Thursday. Maundy Thursday is the 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 remembrance of Jesus washing the defeat the feet of his disciples going into the Lord's Supper. And as I have pondered that over the years, I recognize Jesus is, wash, Jesus is washing Peter's feet while knowing Peter's just hours away from denying he even knows Jesus. Consider he's washing the feet of Judas hours before Judas betrays him with a, with a kiss in the garden there. So, that that's the, the today. If you're listening live on Wednesday when we put the show out, that's that's the calendar. We know what Good Friday is, all coming into ultimately Resurrection Day, Easter morning on Sunday. And we just came through Palm Sunday. It's it is this. I've said to folks before, if you read the if you read the story of Jesus with no background knowledge, like if no one you didn't bring anything to the table, you didn't grow up on the story, you would you would read Palm Sunday. The, that, that, that account as the logical conclusion of the last three years of Jesus' life. He has the story of being dominant over sin, sickness, death, demons, and he's now being brought into the capital city. He's riding on top of a he's riding on a beast, he's riding on a donkey. And people are saying, Hosanna, king of David, they're, excuse me, a son of David. So they're even putting him in the line of their most beloved king. He goes straight to the temple where a king would be installed. Like there's this promise of his enthronement from that Palm Sunday that Jesus has come to be made king. And that would make sense to the original reader 
But we all know the ending, right? We know that the beginning of the week, the voices that were shouting Hosanna in the highest, the son of David, are some of the same voices that later in the week were shouting crucify him. And so it becomes a disorienting thing on Palm Sunday, but when we read through a fully biblical lens, we actually can see here, I just want to start the show with an Easter reflection on what we're going to celebrate this week and what this Holy Week is about, that the promise of Palm Sunday was kept. The promise of Palm Sunday was that Jesus would be enthroned as king, and what we see throughout the week is him doing those kingly things. And when there's a king installed, there's usually a feast. Well, Jesus did that. He, he had his Lord's Supper. There's usually a crown given to him, and there was. It was just a crown of thorns. There's usually a robe given to him, and there was. It was just given to him in mockery. There's an actual herald, a declaration, this is now the king, and that happened both on a sign above his cross and a soldier saying it in mockery. All the trappings of being made king were there, but in this, this not backward, but in a shadow of what he was really doing. Because what folks were looking for on Palm Sunday was for him to come and set up an earthly kingdom that has its own borders, laws, and customs, and to, to enthrone him over a people and over a land that has borders. But what's actually happening is instead of putting him on an earthly throne where he would give out decrees, instead of being lifted up on a throne, he is then lifted up on a cross. He is being enthroned in that moment, not of the king of a certain people with certain borders for a certain time, but he is in that moment doing the, the kingly duty of, of battle. He's just doing the duty of battle in a cosmic way, in an unseen realm. And in, the, in that work on the cross, he is routing his enemies. He is crushing sin. He is absorbing the wrath of God on himself and he is winning the cosmic battle, being enthroned on that cross. We actually see the, the significance of him doing the work of the cross. Once the work is done, as it were, we cut away, when you read this in the Gospels, and the cutaway is to the temple. It's where people go to be with God. And this veil, if you read about it in, in the old law, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you read about that veil, it's thick. It's hard to get through, and if you know the customs and the laws, not anybody can go in there. Not anybody has access to the Holy of Holies and, and, God, and, and God. It was a very specific way in which to get access to God through that veil, and from top to bottom as if God was doing it, because it's top to bottom, not bottom to top as if man is doing it. The work of Jesus as a king, he has declared the work done, it is finished. Well, what's finished? God and sinners reconciled. That's what's finished. You know, there is on that veil that, that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. It separates God from man. What's on that veil is the, the cherubim. It is the, the, the same angel, angelic being, that is placed outside of Eden, whether that's a, a literal story or not, historic story, a story or not, outside of Eden, God places a cherubim to guard the entrance to where he just walked around with man, where God just walked freely with man in total relationship. And so that same, that, that same imagery is there. To, to be with God, you've got to go through the guardian angels of his presence, the cherubim. 
And Jesus, the king, gets up on that cross and tears it wide open to have an unfettered access between God and his people, God and his children. No, Jesus did not go through Palm Sunday to be made king of an earthly people for an, with earthly borders for an earthly time. He went through Palm Sunday and he was enthroned over the king of all creation for all time. That's our king. And that's what this week is all about. He was even manipulating the circumstances, saying the right things at the right time to cause his own execution to do the work of redemption. I think about those folks on Palm Sunday. They were asking for rescue. They were asking to be rescued from an earthly oppressor, the Romans. They wanted their kingdom that again would have its own borders and maybe its own currency and it would have its own culture and they wanted to be their own. That was the victory they wanted. And they were aiming too low. Jesus was not coming to win that little battle. He came to win the battle for all time. And he did it. And it wasn't even close. Because then the final thought here, we finish Holy Week, with Jesus in an empty tomb, it's that that final declaration of his absolute authority over all things, that he's God in the flesh, he has defeated sin, and now defeated our greatest enemy, death. And it's my favorite story of the entire Easter passage. The entire account of the Gospels of this week, it comes as Jesus' tomb is empty, there are these two disciples, two people who are following Jesus, not one of the not one of the twelve, not two of the twelve. And they're on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus, they don't know it's Jesus, he just starts walking with them. And there's this wonderful moment where he's like, Hey guys, what are you talking about? It? What are you guys talking about as you walk? And they ask him almost incredulous, Have you not heard of all of these things that have happened in Jerusalem? And I love this. The way it says it in the text is Jesus asks, and if you're just reading it flatly, you're not using your imagination to create the scene, the, the quote is just, what things? But I, I see, I feel, I hear a smirk in Jesus' voice. He's got these two guys who have been following him. Have you not heard of all these things that have happened? And Jesus says, <laughs> what things? Tell me about it. But as they walk, there is this conversation that the Bible says that he explains to all of them how the entire book was written of him. That their Abraham, their Moses, their Isaac, their Jacob, their Joseph, their David, their Saul, their Solomon, all of their heroes, all of these figures that they had thought might be the solution to problems, all of it was written, Jesus says, of me. I am the much better David. I am the greater Moses and the greater Abraham. I am the greater law. I was the one to fulfill it. I didn't come and break it or even come up short. I fulfilled the requirements of the law. All the things that God gave you, they were all pointing to me. The entire book is written of him. And now, here we are. In a unique time in human history, 2,000 years later, And even in this particularly challenging time, we should take time and enjoy the truth of this story. Enjoy the glory 
That is the promise of Palm Sunday, a king being enthroned, that he was enthroned on that cross and he didn't start something that would be just for a time with its own little borders, but he is now ruling and reigning on his own throne for all of time because he defeated sin and death. We can now celebrate this week that we want all these rescues and we want to be rescued from from this global pandemic or our financial calamity. We want to be rescued in, in familial matters and we're asking for these rescues to be, these, to be saved from the things that ail us. And, he, and Jesus says back, oh, you, I'm going to save you from something even worse. Your, your, your standard for rescue is much too low. I've come to seek and save you from sin and death, not just your, your problems here on this earth. And then we can celebrate this week. That all of the promises that God made are yes, yes in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment, the completion of all those, and we celebrate him this week in his total victory over sin, death, and the grave. We're going to get off of the Easter reflection and move on to some news when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. If you would be so kind, connect to the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. And if you want to participate in the show, there are various and sundry ways for you to do that, to do so. One is to you can just contact me on any of the social media sites, but there's also Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. You can leave a voicemail for the show at the Anchor app, anchor.fm. Or what's the other way? Oh, yeah, you can always Marco Polo if you are so inclined. And I can use that audio on the show. That's always a possibility. Let's go here. I, got, I had a comment on Instagram and then a an email. The comment was from Sam. Uh, and then I have one an email here from Matthew. The one from uh, Matthew is a little more disturbing. But thanks for listening, man. So uh, I'll try to be kind. I'm not good at it, but I'm going to try. There is a subset on the American political right wing that is conspiracy theory type, like they're driven that direction. And I'm not talking about going as far as like an Alex Jones. I think I mentioned on the show in the past several years, I went through a period of time where I listened to four hours of Alex Jones every every day because I was so intrigued by the worldview. Alex Jones was a big conspiracy guy, so he would be the 9-11 is an inside job uh, what else? He he thinks lots of crazy things. Um, but basically nothing ever actually really happens. Everything is a, every news story, every major news story, every terrorist attack, every war. Um, I, I haven't actually looked at what the conspiracy people are saying now over the pandemic, but I'm sure they think it's, uh, it's the Masons or the Bilderberg group uh, or the Rockefellers is a big group for them too. But like there's Every, everyone's a puppet master. There's no actual power. Like, the people who are actually running the world are behind the scenes, and no one knows who they are. Like, it's that, oh, yeah. They also think most of the, all the mass shootings are fake. So Alex Jones thinks what happened in Connecticut with those all those first graders, second graders, whatever it was, elementary school kids that died, that's all fake. So uh, that is a, a group on the... Um, I wouldn't even put them in the political right. So that's a crazy group. But then there's a people that they're part of the mainstream. I mean, they're normal-ish Americans, as normal as any of us are, but but are given to lean conspiracy directions to think that there's something bigger going on. And that was actually the comment from uh, one of those listeners was something bigger is happening here. 
I've seen that on Facebook a little bit from some people I know personally and then just some commentators that this pandemic, this thing going on, something bigger is happening that we just don't know and that there's nefarious powers in the background and something, something bigger is happening with this. So because I got the comment from one, I got an email from Matthew that's really intense here about one world governance and all that. So I just have some responses to that because there's a healthy thing we can do. The healthy thing is this. We, we've not ever had to respond to a global pandemic in the information age. We've had global pandemics in the past, black plague, Spanish, Spanish flu, all that. But we, didn't, we did not have the communication that we do now to know what's all happening at the same time and coordinate efforts and all that. Like, this is, without question, the most significant thing that's ever happened to humanity. It's the most significant, uh, maybe I got some other things that could be more significant. Like, this is definitely the most significant thing that's happened in my lifetime for the United States. This is bigger than 9-11. This is literally affecting the entire planet. It's not just affecting one country. Um, and, and the things that often come out of significant events, that they stick around longer than they should, or uh, we, we didn't think well enough. So, you know, coming out of 9-11, the consequence is a surveillance state that we've still not... Uh, we're still not dismantled. So we, of all the data that gets collected on us, we started TSA. We're not even really sure it's been all that effective. Uh, there's there's things that happen and then they stay installed. And so while I don't think, and there's no evidence to suggest that there's something big happening behind the scenes, th- there is room to ask the question of the response. Hey, is this the people we want to be? It, it, are and are things happening here that are going to stick around that are ultimately deleterious to our freedoms? Is government getting too much power? These are all fair questions as we examine our response to a global pandemic because none of us have ever responded to one before. So we are seeing troubling things. I am seeing government grab powers that I don't know that they have. We just declare an emergency... And then the government can just do can do whatever it wants, can just tell you to do whatever it wants. Well, just for example, like a stay-at-home orders. Can the government really... I mean, we're complying with it, and it's a, it's a good idea. It's a, I do think it's a good idea. But you see in some cities, they actually want to like charge people with a crime if they're leaving their home and don't have the right permission or they're in the wrong neighborhood. We, I am seeing mayors and governors and the federal government grab power that's not theirs to have. And of course, that's troubling. We're, we are seeing ridiculous arrests. People who should not be arrested for being out in public, sometimes being arrested. By the way, it's these weird contradictions where it's... You have a situation where they're releasing prisoners because you don't, you don't want prisoners all in these tight spaces infecting one another... At the same time, they're releasing prisoners. They're arresting free Americans because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time and they could spread this disease. You have these contradictions where just the, the mayor of LA decides that gun stores and, and gun sales aren't essential, so you can't buy a gun anywhere. So at the same time you're letting out prisoners, you're, you just decided. You don't, there, there's no constitutional authority for that, but you just decided. Can't, you also can't buy guns. Like there's... That kind of world, that's a troubling thing, and we should be able to be able to say so without sounding insensitive to the pandemic. There's power being consolidated in governments that there's no constitutional authority for, and we need to at least hear that there's some plan to give those powers back. 
I have been fine with the idea of churches not meeting, for example. But we do see governments telling them you can't meet and pastors being arrested if they do meet. So free Americans, within the First Amendment in particular, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then the fourth enumerated liberty in the First Amendment is to gather, is to be together. And so we're violating outright the First Amendment with punishment from the government. Again, churches, I would advise, don't meet, especially for those who are in anything close to a populist populous area. It's not wise. But the idea that the government can say, could just basically end the First Amendment. Like, there's a pandemic. We don't have a First Amendment anymore. You don't get to meet. Churches don't get to meet. You don't get to gather. Wait, shouldn't we at least talk about that before you just end the First Amendment? Like, we, we are seeing troubling things. We see, not in the United States yet, but we see the rise of software to track people. So, in some of these Asian countries... People being tracked with their phones, letting you know, like we we know because we pinged your location that you were around this many different people that we have verified are infected. Well, that's a little that's a little scary that governments would have that kind of power. Th- this is not my eschatology, what I'm about to say, but I see some folks who are out- outside of my theological system talk about going to a cashless world um, because of the need for all of us to stop touching each other's money because it's so germ-infested. So the idea being that what they see in their eschatology, because that particular end times theory goes that there'd be a one world government and a one world currency, that this is just moving us towards the one world currency, which I don't think is going to happen at all. But they're all, so some people, we're seeing some troubling things and we should be able to say so and ask how we're going to get back to some sort of constitutional governance. And then there's some theological systems that are driving some of that. But I, I want to respond to Sam and Matthew who say something bigger is happening here. Well, first, I do acknowledge there are troubling things happening with government taking power for itself that it does not have as it responds to this crisis. I I don't see what, particularly the Matthew email, seems to be saying about how this is setting up for some kind of end of days the, that, that particular view of Revelation, I don't see it for this reason. Well, actually, I can't go th- through all of the reasons why I don't read th- uh, eschatology that way. But there, let me say it this way. Occam's razor. Right? So Occam's razor is the simplest, the, uh, the, the most simple explanation is often the, mo- is the one that is correct. Like you don't need all this conspiracy, just the most simple thing. The most simple explanation for this is that the natural state of humanity is to gravitate towards these solutions. The natural state of humanity is to say, someone rescue me. So, someone save us. And so we allow power to accumulate for governments because we think they can save us and they'll rescue us. That's just the natural state of things. Whatever the, we're talking about the human nature here, whatever the story of Babel is, there, there's a lot of, a lot of discussion about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So maybe Tower of Babel, maybe it's not a historical story. I don't know. I tend to lean towards it is a historical story, but whatever it is, I do know what it's supposed to be telling us about ourselves. It is supposed to be illustrating to us that 
humanity, when it comes together, will set itself up as gods, will try to create its, its own religions and become God. And God, he broke that up for a reason. It's not good for us. It's not good for humanity to, to all merge together into, into oneness, that, he, that God set up nations for a reason and borders for a reason, all that. But that does tell something about human nature. Human nature from the very beginning would lead us to one worldism, to conjoining with one another. And it should be part of then the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, to look at how God actually set up the world and to respect sovereignty of countries and respect the sovereignty of people groups that we don't all come together into one governance. And so I, I hear you out there who are in times related people saying that this this time in human history makes me think that we're really on to something. Yeah, but there's just a bunch of other explanations for that. Like, there's a, there's other ways to interpret this, and one of it is just natural human history. You know, I, I have, but the natural state of human history. I've had um, pretty, pretty deep discussions about this with some people who see the the call for one world governance as particular, because that's, that's happened, by the way. I mean, if you haven't seen it, there's been people saying, this is why we need a one world government, because you know, how, how else can we manage pandemics? Well, well, first, you don't set up systems based on crises. You set up a system based on what's normal. Obviously, what we're doing is not normal. Uh, we're not going to have pandemics all the time. So you don't set up governmental systems and structures, or for that matter, business systems and structures, financial systems and structures, based on the weird things that happen, you, you set them up for what is normal, and then you respond to those things outside of normalcy when they come up. But that doesn't ha- this idea of gravitating towards one-worldism doesn't have to be nefarious. It just happens to be the, the natural state of the human condition to lead us that direction. And I think that's as far as I'll, I'll go. I'm getting tempted here to do a show soon about eschatology, just getting into the... Get, getting into some of the consequences of how we, we we view the end and how it affects how we're we're living right now uh, in in this world. Okay, um, so to respond to those two emails I got, uh, I don't think anything bigger is happening. Uh, I don't think there's anything nefarious happening in the background. There's not there's not some uh, puppeteer, I guess, as it were, pulling the strings of world leaders. This just happens to be a unique situation. Some troubling things are happening in it. And where it does lead us towards troubling outcomes, like one-worldism, that's just the natural state of being and not something necessarily like a dark spiritual force or something like that. All right. Let me keep it into the theological world for a minute. I got another message from... This one's from Drew. Drew writes in, uh, respectfully, but certainly disagreeing and a little snarky. That's okay. I can be snarked at. He's 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 responding to the fact that either either on this show or on the morning show on his radio talk, I said I am in favor of some kind of f- financial package from Congress. The one we passed wasn't wasn't good, but we had to do something. And my argument was, the government's the one that wrecked the economy. They're the ones saying you're not allowed to work, you're not allowed to open your business. So if you guys wreck it, you have to fix it. And he's also responding that I think it was on this show that I responded. Yeah, it was this show um, where. There was the Far Farhad Manju talked about how uh, in a pandemic everyone wants universal health care, and I think I said some things on Twitter about to responding to the people saying well, everyone's a socialist in a crisis, and 
I'm just putting out there the reality that that's it's not true. I mean, we we set up governments. This is actually one of the only things I'd ever want a government to do is coordinate a response to something that's outside of all of us. This is something I've talked about on the show many times. You you take it's not good to take emergency situations and then apply them to all of life. So I did that recently. Uh, a couple of you wrote in to say it was very funny, and which thank you for that. Um, I, I like to be affirmed in the humor. But talk talking about how we we want the government to have a big response to coronavirus, and then there's people that say, and that's why you should give the entire healthcare system to the government. And what I said was, yeah, I want them to help with a global pandemic. That doesn't mean I want the government paying for every filling in your teeth. Like, how'd you go from one big thing to every little small thing? Like, don't do that. It's not a it's not a good system. And so Drew writes in to say. Basically, that I'm being hypocritical and I'm being inconsistent. Um, and he wanted to bring up one particular point. He said, in the past, you said that you want to do away with health, uh, with um, social programs because the church and ministries can do a lot of the same stuff. We don't have to have mass taxation and government to do it. And he writes in to say, so, and the church obviously could not handle this. And so this is why we need social uh, safety nets and all that. So for Drew, I think I have two thoughts. One, as I hear you, and I don't necessarily disagree, I, I don't disagree. This is the stuff that governments are for. It's, it is, these kind of crises are the stuff that we want efficient governments that can coordinate responses to gigantic crises. I think that's a good thing for government. That's why I'm not, I'm not an anarchist. I'm not for no government. I'm just for very limited government. But your second point about how the church situation, like the church can't take care of poverty or the consequences of unemployment, and so this is why we need a government. I would just encourage everybody to Google or to go to YouTube and search for the crowding out effect. I'm not going to go into it super in-depth, but libertarians have done a lot of work on this, and and libertarians are not particularly religious people. But what the, the academic studies find is the church does more when governments start to do less when that's been tried throughout the world. What happens is you set up these systems where there's there's less work to do, and so the, the, the government crowds out ministries. They crowd out the church. They crowd out any other kind of private resource because, well, the government will just do it. And even when the... The churches or the ministries, the the nonprofits try to get involved. The government has something like I hate to say it this way, but almost like a corner on the market, and they we can't even get in to do the work. We can't get in to do the work because the government's doing it, and they won't even let some other folks help. We saw that at the beginning with Katrina back in '05. There were lots of churches and ministries trying to get involved, and because FEMA was doing what they were doing, they were just telling everyone, "No, like you can't help. You're not allowed to help. At least that's the way you want to." And so that second point. Like it's important to recognize if government was doing less, it would create space for all of us just to help each other and not look to massive structures to do it for us. So thanks, Drew, for sending that over. Uh, a couple of you tagged me in this one from the Greenville, oh, excuse me, from the New York Times. I, I love being from the upstate of South Carolina. I technically live in Easley, but I love Greenville. I love this town. Um, I'm I'm proud to say I'm from here. Like it's it's that I have an affection for our town. I love Greenville. And usually when we're on a New York Times list or one of the big 
big, big national papers lists, it's usually for a good thing. And we are now number one for not a great thing. Apparently, throughout the month of March, of all the counties, the thousands of counties in the United States of America, the county whose residents traveled the most, so didn't stay at home, as the big thing, you know, stay at home to, uh, what is it, stay, stay home, slow the spread is how their people have said it. The, counties, the county whose residents traveled the most in the month of March is Greenville County, South Carolina. We are the ones who moved around the most, who are staying home the least. Some of us probably feel some kind of perverse pride about that, but that's, uh, that's not good, Like for, at least for a little while longer. Minimizing our exposure to, to, the, to the world is probably a good thing for our health and for the health of others. Uh, so here I am broadcasting to primarily an audience of Greenville. Hey guys, we're number one. Maybe, maybe let's try to diminish our, how ambitious we are about being number one on everything. We have a little bit more of listener feedback and a couple other topics I want to cover on the show. We'll get started on those when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show for our final segment. Thank you for listening to the podcast wherever it is you find podcasts and listening on his radio talk 91.9 and 92.9 on Saturday mornings. If you would be so kind. Share the show with somebody. We all have a little bit more time now in quarantine COVID-19 world, and I am seeing that effect. It has not been bad for the podcasting world to have folks at home looking for maybe something different to do. And so when you share the show with others, it's certainly helpful to me, and it might be helpful to them as well, because I think we do some decent work here uh, that can be entertaining, but also have some enlightenment and education there as well. Uh, So I would be grateful if you shared the show. Also, if you listen to the podcast, Wherever it is you listen, if you review the show, click like on it, rate it in any way, it does help other people find it. We show up in the algorithm uh, for other shows uh, to get recommended. So if you would be so kind to take a moment and do that, I would be grateful. I got an email from Daniel, a good friend and wise person. And so when I get, uh, how do I nuance this? criticism is something I I feel like I take decently well because I have the ability to to decide if it's valid or not and move on. So when I get some, a lot of criticism I get, they're they're just right. Whoever's criticizing, they're right, I'm wrong, and there's a change I need to make. Uh, But I can also recognize when I've just, I've been, I've I've said the, I've said something correct. That's, that's a fact. Maybe I could have said it a little better, but the person is just mad because I'm right. And they don't like that the, the the facts are there. So there, I got an email about another topic. He, he mentioned here's a quote: "I thought your comments about modern worship music was a bit too broad, were a bit too broad, uh, broad brushed, and lacked nuance." That's a thing that I could fall into quite easily. Lacking nuance is a is a thing I used to do really badly, and I think I'm getting better and better at it. So I, I do want to revisit it. A few weeks ago, I played a clip of a funny parody of uh, it's called the worship song song it's i thought it was very funny it did a a parody of modern worship music and copied a lot of the themes or tropes if you want of of that music and particularly as a guy who does music every sunday morning for uh, in a church setting and if you don't if you guys don't know i used to be in a band i was in a rock band uh, I might start sharing some of those pictures on 
on what the internet calls Throwback Thursday, but you know, I used to have hair past my shoulder, and I was in a rock band. I did conferences where we would not play rock music. We would do worship music, and I've been doing this a long time. So I've thought about it a lot, and I have uh, where, I, where I maybe have lacked some nuance in the past. I do want to put some in here to this discussion around worship music and what we do in church. And, and what I was trying to say about that parody was this. Lyrically, it was funny to me because it it did ha- it has one of the themes of most contemporary Christian music. So there's a difference between praise and worship and the contemporary Christian stuff. So the contemporary Christian stuff is maybe more of Casting Crowns, Mercy Me types, Lauren Daigle, stuff that might not get done in church as much, but you can hear on radio. One of the main songs that you're going to see, you're going to hear written, and you know, it'll happen a lot. I mean, just turn on, just turn on the radio on a Christian music, and you'll hear a lot of these songs. It's 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 low self-esteem songs. It's songs about self-esteem, and sometimes they get it right where they're going to find that the solution to their low self-esteem is recognition of who we are in Christ and not our own uh, not, not, not our own plaudits and not our own skills and abilities and talents, but sometimes not so much. Sometimes it's just a song about accepting yourself for who you are, which you just shouldn't do, by the way. Uh, you should accept who we are in, in Christ, right? So uh, that, it was funny to me, but here was the funnier part. It's a person who's done music for a long time. Is the, the cadence the dynamics of modern worship music is often very similar. As an example, I think maybe 80% of the praise and worship music you turn on right now is going to follow this pattern. Verse 1, with either just a piano or acoustic guitar, and they won't go to the chorus, they'll go verse 2 and add a couple more instruments. So verse 1, verse 2, the first chorus will pop in. That's probably the first time you're going to hear somebody on some toms. Not going full kick, snare, cymbals, but hear somebody on some toms to build a little bit. You'll then get a third verse, which is going to be more full band before going chorus again, which is going to be more full band into some bridge, which is just a, a reconfiguration of the four chords they were previously playing. And that bridge is going to be big. It's going to be this big blast of a bridge. And that bridge is going to plummet into, I mean, it's a good plummet musically. It's going to fall into back into either one guitar or just piano and a really soft chorus before building right back into, and that chorus might even only be vocals. If it's a more upbeat song, it won't go down into just piano and guitar. It's going to go just into voices or you get voices with uh, somebody working on the toms, uh, on, on the drums. And that is the pattern of the music. It's just how the pattern works. I'm not saying it's a good or bad pattern. I'm just saying it's a pattern that's obviously been... It's been popularized, and so you'll you'll hear it a lot. And so that's one of the reasons that song was so funny to me, is because musically, like, yep, that's exactly how modern worship music uh, works broadly. Now, if I did handle modern worship music with not enough nuance, I do just want to give uh, a more full thinking of how uh, I, I think the I think biblically informed, and if I if I'm wrong on that, I'll, I'm I'm happy to be disagreed with. You can write into the show CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com. If you think, hey man, I think biblically, I want to offer you something that uh, on your my, my view of music. So music in the church. One of our big issues was the commercialization of worship music. So uh, when we decide to 
start making some money off of worship music. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Making money is not a bad thing. I'm just saying, when you start writing for the purpose of selling and popularization, it's going to change what you're composing. So when the goal is theologically correct, theologically deep, you you do come out with you, you're going to come out of that with "Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing," uh, "Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Praise." You're, you're going to come out of it with "Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by Thy help I come," because we are looking for for using the songs, using the music almost as a teaching tool and a rehearsal tool, because that's in part what it is to teach things that are true. Part of worshiping in spirit and in truth is we've got to know these true things about our God. And so when we're going to lift a, a new song or lift a song to the Lord as, a, as the Psalms would even instruct, well, that song needs to have some truth in it about our God. And partly in the past we've used uh, songs to rehearse those truths so that we could have some theological depth and we're teaching everybody theological truth through song. But then when you you get past that motivation and the motivation ends up being popularization uh your your motivation is going to change you want to appeal to a different you're appealing to something different it's no longer a teaching tool you're now trying to appeal to people who want to hear a song that they relate to about their life something like that and that's not necessarily a problem i'm just saying that that was a change we had a commercialization of worship music change the the goal of the song writing um then further, we change the we change the setting. I think some of the worship music led us to change the setting. Uh, what's a good way to illustrate this? I should have prepared better for this. There's a there's a reason a lot of the the worship time, the worship through song. That's another problem we have is we equate the word worship with the, with the singing. It happens in the, some bigger churches in very dark rooms. And it's very performative uh, and also emotionally immersive. That's one of the reasons the songs get arranged that way. The arrangement of the song is, the, is partly to be emotionally compelling. So that it, it, it takes you through those dynamics to manipulate the feelings. I'm not necessarily saying manipulate is bad, but it is manipulation, a manipulation of the feelings. And because we did that, we, we have now written more songs to not teach about necessarily that which is true, but we're trying to create something more of an emotional experience where there, we then judge music or songs by whether or not there was an emotional experience. But ultimately, if, uh, if a song was true and it did not cause an emotional reaction in you, it's still better to sing the true thing then the and the deeper thing than even singing a shallow true thing that caused some kind of emotional reaction because what we need is the truth that's what's going to change us our orthodoxy changes our orthopraxy it will not be emotional experiences that change us it will be truth that changes us because emotion wears off all emotions do the good ones and the bad ones love wears down anger ebbs these the things that will stick around are the true things and so I don't think I'm painting too broadly that teaching in truth is not the clear goal of the of the arrangement of a lot of modern worship music. And I say a lot. I, I'm going to go with 
vast majority, and lyrically, it's it's there's 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 going to be less depth compared to uh, compared certainly to the hymns, but even some of the stuff the Gettys are doing, and from time to time, some of these other places like um, like Hillsong, uh, they'll 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 hit one from time to time. Like uh, what did they do? I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. Uh, I see his wounds, his hands, his feet. This is, uh, the, the, but the fact that he even like you know, the, including died for me, uh, at least implies sin debt being paid. Like you don't even you don't get a lot of that in certain portions of the the worship world, and so uh, I can't. There are some worship groups, some of the biggest that I I can't find a song in there that we would do that. There's any depth to it. I'm just going to go ahead and stop with my own thing here and get to Nine Marks. Uh, Nine, Nine Marks is fantastic. It's Mark Dever's ministry. Mark Dever has been pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church for a couple decades now, I think. And his his educational expertise is is what I would study if I had the, the time, resources, and wherewithal to go back to grad school or seminary. I would study ecclesiology. I love the church. I love the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and how we do church. That's, a, that's something I'm very interested in, and Nine Marks is all about that. What is the church, and how to and how do we operate the church? What is the, our ecclesiology? And so I just have often went to them for these discussions. So I'm just going to give you the why we sing. So why do we do music in church? What what can be our guiding uh, our guiding principles? And, and what songs you do and why we do them, how we do them. So here you go from Nine Marks. This will probably be the last thing we do today. First, so why do we sing? We first sing to own and affirm the Word of God. This is what I was trying to say earlier, but they're going to say it better. One of the purposes to sing is to, to inculcate the Bible. So the Word is the power, and so then we have the song as the tool to teach what the word says. Psalm 96, 2 says, Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. So there's some connection there between the singing of the songs and being able to tell, to speak, to know the truth of the gospel. And so we should examine the songs we sing for their biblical depth, biblical accuracy, and whether or not we're learning some theological lesson from what we're singing. So we sing to own and affirm the word. Number two, we sing to engage our emotions with God's word. So I talked maybe too too much in a denigrating way a minute ago about emotional experience. And I did that because often music gets judged by the creation or the lack of creation of emotional experience and emotional connection. But that's not its purpose. Again, its purpose is for the worship of God in spirit and truth to, to learn the word, but it does engage our emotions as well because God gave us emotions. They're good things and they should be engaged. Psalm 45, one, uh, that is a, one of the Psalms of David. I'm pretty sure it says my heart overflows with a pleasing, thief, a pleasing theme. So the heart there being symbolic of these, of these emotions. So what I've learned, the truth that I've learned, they're so glorious that now there's there's song and there's writing and there's lyrics and that builds into an emotional response. It isn't the emotional response is the point. It's the result of the thing we learned. And so when I get to 
uh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood in righteousness. There's something that, that there's something in, in me, because I know that's so true, all the other hope I have in this world, the things I might place hope in, people, money, reputation, whatever I place my hope in, all those things fail me, but my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus. And so that truth then emanates with an emotional response. And it might be gratefulness and thankfulness. It might be joy and celebration. But it is on that truth that the emotion is, uh, is, is, is activated in me. What is the, the last verse of that song? Um, he, he shall return and... Ro- nope, that's a different song. But it's something about dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Well, that's a glorious truth. That, that's going to cause some emotion in me. That's going to rile me up. But because it's true, and that was the focus, the truth led to the emotional engagement. And the third and final thing Nine Mark says about why we sing is we sing to demonstrate and build unity. This is one where uh, the, the modern worship setting actually is something, something somewhat problematic. In a dark room with music so loud the, quote, worship experience, the song, ends up being yours and yours alone. You can't really hear the people around you singing. You really can't hear yourself singing. You hear the folks who are, who are mic'd when it's with all that production. And so it's just a, a moment of just you and the Lord. And I'm sure there's some place for that. But part of the singing is to hear the voices of others, to build unity, that we agree on these things. We believe these things together, that living he loved me and dying he saved me. And he's, he's, uh, he's coming back again one glorious day that we all actually believe that together. And so maybe that's a more nuanced discussion than I gave previously and some principles for all of us to use as we think about what kind of music we do in church and why we do it at all. So thank you for that, Daniel. And we can continue that conversation at Show at gmail.com. If you have thoughts, any of you have thoughts on that, I'd be glad to take those. We are out of time for the week. We'll be back with another new edition for the show next week. Um, and I guess it'll be more COVID-19 stuff, but I'll continue to try to find other things to do as well when you come back next week for the Corey Act Show. Until next time, peace and love.